Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 150 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Woohoo! I feel all grown up, like 150 episodes. How cool is that? Can you believe this started like almost three years ago? It'll be three years ago in September that we started this podcast. It's been an incredible journey. This is, this is nuts, you guys. Like, Four million downloads. Like you guys have been unbelievable. And when we hit five million, which I think maybe could happen before Christmas, we're going to throw a big party and you guys are going to be the winners in that. But I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for letting friends know about this. Thanks for being just such constant encouragers in all of this. And, you know, the goal is it's a pretty eclectic mix of just leaders and thinkers and influencers who I think have insight to church leadership. I've been doing this for 22 years, and I know I'm growing from a whole variety of sources. And I really, really hope that this little infusion in your inbox every Tuesday is helping you move the needle on the most important mission in the world. That's what I really believe the mission of the church is. It is the uh, the biggest and the best mission in the world. And 150 episodes in, you know, it's kind of nice to see like a secret hope or a, a dream come alive because my dream was to be able to take some of the backroom conversations I was having when I was speaking in places and then then just let everybody hear them. And I, I kind of feel like that's what's happened with this podcast. And speaking of backroom and frontroom conversations, have you guys checked out the Orange Tour and the Deep and Wide Tour yet this fall? I got great news. I will be at all of the stops that Andy Stanley is going to be at. He's doing the Deep and Wide Tour. You can go to deepandwide.com. And the day before the Orange Tour rolls in, Andy is doing a one day and I will be there at all of those and I'd love to meet with you. And then uh, I'm also sticking around for the Orange Tour and I'll be speaking at that in many different cities. You can get, including all the ones Andy's going to be at. And that starts in September. We are probably coming to a city near you somewhere in the United States of America. And you can check out all the details at orangetour.org. So that's deepandwide.com, orangetour.org. Super pumped to be meeting a lot of you. And I got some new stuff this fall that I'm excited to share. Ah, not yet, but soon with you guys. also want to thank um, the partners to this podcast for the first 150 episodes. Um, it's always free to you, but you know what? There are costs. I have a great producer who produces this. My little team has grown from one to three in the last couple of months just because of the growth. And uh, you know what? People help underwrite that. And so I really want to thank Trained Up. Now, I want you to know that this podcast is not for sale. We have people banging down the door going, hey, can I be an advertiser? And I don't hesitate to say no because... I want to go with people that I just, you know, if you click, like I feel like, okay, this is going to be a value add for you. So that's my approach. I've said no over and over again. And I've walked away from from financial opportunity because I think the most important thing you and I have going is trust. And I don't want to violate that. So if you hear me mention something, it's because I really believe in it. And I believe you'll be better off. And one of those is actually trainedup.church. They've been a partner now for a number of months. And they help you train your volunteers in a way that you probably never have been able to do. Because like everybody, volunteers don't show up when they're supposed to. Or let's say everybody shows up, you get all your volunteers trained. And then next month, you have new volunteers. What are you going to do? Monthly training. And then often, you know, people don't show up. You got to check out trainedup.church. 
they actually do online training. You don't have to build a website. They built it. You can actually tell which of your volunteers have done it and which haven't. That, that's a little creepy, but I know it. Wouldn't you want like a fully trained team? And so you can encourage and motivate people that way. Also, if you don't have the video gear to shoot your own training, they either have done for you videos where they'll, they'll train all your welcome team or your, your children's ministry people, or guess what? <laughs> they'll also help out by lending you video equipment. So they've got different options, different tiers. It works for large churches, small churches, trainedup.church. And speaking of church, do you know that every single church is in a life cycle at some point in a life cycle? Any idea where your church is at? I mean, if you really look at it, some churches are definitely in launch phase. Some, maybe you're experiencing momentum growth, but some are in maintenance mode, some are on preservation, and some are on life support. Well, Take the guesswork out of it. Just go to theunstuckchurch.com and stop guessing. Take the free Unstuck Church assessment at theunstuckchurch.com and then you'll know. Better yet, take it with your team. So super excited for this conversation today. It's a little bit different. It's kind of a round table and I've done those once or twice, but um, this one is with three guys I've met over the last year, Chad Merrill, Paul Smith and Philip Thurman. They're all in the U.S. They're all in a rural setting and they are leading rural multi-sites. So like, you know, a decade ago, everyone thought multi-sites for mega churches in suburban or urban settings. And, and the reality is it's taking over everywhere. So how can you overcome the odds to create vibrant churches in small towns and villages? Um, I sit down with Chad Merrill, Paul Smith and Philip Thurman and they talk about exactly how they're doing it, and it's an incredible story. So let's jump into that roundtable discussion with Chad, Paul, and Philip right now. Well, doing something a little bit different today, our first like panel, all right? But this is like a real panel with three people, all moving in from different areas, and I'm thrilled to have Philip Thurman, Paul Smith, and Chad Merrill with me today on the podcast to chat rural multi-site. Welcome, guys. Good to be hey, here. Kerry. Awesome. Hey, um, so we'll we'll quickly go around the table and just tell us, all right, because this is what, we shouldn't do this, but this is what we're going to do just to establish context. And everybody who's ever been to a conference knows that this happens in the first two minutes of being at a conference. But uh, tell us where you're from, when you got into rural multi-site, how many campuses, and the average campus size and the size of your church. Just let us know. Because I know we always say as lead pastors, we're not going to do that. But this will establish context, both large and small, for our audience, because we're talking about something that I think a decade ago, a lot of people would said would never work. And yet here it is working. So Chad, why don't we start with you? Sure. Hi, Kerry. My name's Chad Merrill, and I'm the campus pastor for First West, a regional church in West Monroe, Louisiana. We have three campuses. Our original campus runs about 16 to 1800 per Sunday. And oh. our campus that I pastor runs about four, 300 usually. And then we have a brand new campus that we just launched two days ago. And, or three days ago now on Easter, and they're averaging about 110 per weekend after a few soft start services and Easter launch. That's great. So you have three campuses, and this is in Louisiana. And I should ask one more question. What's the size of your town? Because we're talking rural, rural multi-site. So give me some context for your community. Very different across all three. Very okay. different across all three in in the uh, in the original at the original site the the broadcast church or or whatever most people would call it would be a town of about eighteen thousand in West Monroe. The mm -hmm. town I am in is one of the fastest growing towns in Louisiana, and we've grown from about eighteen hundred to thirty eight hundred. So very small. There you go. And but then, that's like a village. In, 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's in fact, we just, we just moved from village status to town status, I believe. There you and go. then we have another, another, uh, the newest campus in Calhoun, which is about 30 minutes to the other direction from our original campus. And they, that, that town is more of an idea. It's unincorporated. And I'd <laughs> say there's probably uh 2000, 3000 people in that area as well. So again, like a village, really? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're not, are you near, what's the, how far to the, to a large city for you guys? The biggest city here is, is uh, probably Monroe. And there's mm-hmm. somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 in that, in that um, um, corporate incorporated area. I think between Monroe uh, city limits and, and outskirts about 55,000. And then we're about uh, two hours from Jackson, Mississippi, about two mm-hmm. hours from or hour and a half from Shreveport, Louisiana. Those would be the next closest. Right. So, I mean, everybody would say, well, that's almost like a town status of 50,000. That's barely a city as well. So even though it's proper, you know, it functions like a town, which is great. Okay, Chad, thanks so much. Philip, let's go over to you. Hi, Kerry. Uh, great to be here with you. Thanks for letting us be a part of this. It was awesome hanging out with you in Guatemala with compassion. So thanks for yeah. having us on. I'm in uh, Madison, Mississippi. Uh, launched a church in 2003 and then went multi-site in 2014 after a merger with another church plant, a very healthy church plant, and our church plant merged. And we came together, and they had two sites at the time, one in South Jackson, or actually in Jackson, which is south of our Madison campus. That's a capital. And then they had a campus up here in Madison. We merged that campus into our, our campus here at Madison. And so now we have our Madison campus, which is our main campus. We have a, a campus 25 minutes southeast of us uh, by the reservoir. And uh, then we have one four hours north of us in Corinth, Mississippi, kind of in the corner of Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi. Our population runs, uh, Jackson has said our capital is about 172,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison is set to have about 95,000. Reservoir is about 20,000, if you the reservoir proper. And then our current campus has about 14,000 up north. So all different sizes. And listen to this. We already have church mergers involved. We've got (laughs) villages involved. We've got distance involved. Did you say four hours apart? Yeah, our our, uh, campus is four hours north of us, yeah. Man, you see, that that's crazy. And how large are the churches within these cities and communities then, Philip? Yeah. Our Madison campus will average about 600 to 800 um, on, a, on a good weekend. And then our reservoir campus will go between 75 to 100. And then our Corinth campus will go anywhere from 90 to 130. Gotcha. That's great. And I should say, too, by the way, I spent uh, the better part of a week with Philip and with Paul because we were on, and I'm doing another one this, this fall, uh, actually this winter, with Compassion. We were on a mission trip together uh, with Compassion in Guatemala. An amazing week together. That was a great, mm-hmm. great trip. And uh, so I got to know Philip and I got to know Paul as leaders. And I realized there was a uh, rural multi-site that they had in common. And we didn't know that heading into the trip. And then Chad and I, we've been, we connected almost a year ago on Twitter because you said, hey, I'm doing rural multi-site. And so when we got back, it took a lot of scheduling genius, but we put this little round table together and, uh, and that's been great. Okay, so that's Philip. Paul, let's go to you, because you are in the panhandle of Florida, correct? Yes, uh, we're in the panhandle of Florida, and we have uh, three locations. We're about 50 miles west of Tallahassee, Florida, and so that'll kind of give the location. Some people call us Lower Alabama, and uh, we have, <laughs> as I said, we have, 
We have uh, three locations. Uh, one of those is in Bluntstown, Florida. Uh, that was kind of the original campus. That is a town of about 2,000 people. Uh, that is a campus of about 600 to 650 people. And wow. then in 2010... In a, in, a, in a town of 2,000. Yes. So 600 yep. people in a town of 2,000. That's, that's nuts. Okay. Yeah, that campus had over 900 people uh, at Easter this year. <laughs> wow. Half yeah. the village, literally. Yeah. <laughs> So then in 2010, we launched uh, the Mariana campus, and the Mariana campus is a population of about 6,500 people, the town, and uh, that campus is about 700 people. Wow. And uh, some Sundays, about 750. And so um, then in 2016, uh, yeah, last year in August 2016, we launched our Chipley campus, and that's a town of uh, 3,200 and that campus is averaging a little over 200 on any given Sunday. In fact, um, this e this past Easter, they had th over 330 people there. Uh, it's it pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. So, so we're pretty excited about what's happening at Chipley because it's only um, about nine months old. And every staff member there is under 30 years of age. Mm. Really? And, yeah. and what are you, Paul? Are you 31, 32? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. I'm a year behind you, Carrie. So go ahead. All and right. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in our very lower 50s. You live in That's lower right. Alabama and we're in our very early 50s. I'm 52. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, this is, this is fascinating. So I love this because, I mean, the conventional wisdom in multi-site was everything you guys are describing a decade ago. 99 out of 100 people you talk to on multi-site would say, impossible, don't even bother, throw in the towel, don't even start. Um, tell, me, tell me about that. What, what made you get into multi-site? The way we got into um, multi-site was I started pastoring in 1993, uh, what was in a very small uh, Mennonite church in Bluntstown, Florida. I uh, had a hardware and building supply at that time. And so I was bivocational and I was bivocational for about eight years. And during that eight year period, uh, we really were searching and seeking, OK, what can what can the church really be to really impact our communities with Jesus Christ? During that time, we got connected with North Point and learned about their model. And I just believe that simple model would make a difference because I grew up in a kind of a blended family in the sense of my dad came from a redneck pagan home. And my mom, um, she was born, in, I believe, into an Amish family, and then they got liberal and became Mennonite. And so I lived <laughs> in both of those worlds and um, just said, okay, so how can people like my mom's family create a church for people like my dad's family who never been part of a church? And so, as I said, wow. we connected with North Point, started uh, following that model and began seeing it make a difference uh, by 2004. Uh, we uh, had added our second service, uh, which was um, crazy in a small town of 2,000 people. People said, you can never do that. 2009, we um, added a third service, and we began to realize we had people coming from five different communities around us, um, and some of them weren't sticking. And so we started doing exit interviews, and they were like, if you would start another church in Mariana like this, uh, we would be there, and it would go. And so we realized we had probably about 100 people who were committed to doing that. And that was kind of the vision for multi-site. Mm. And so we started the campus in Mariana and uh, it took off. And that kind of started the whole process. And then once Mariana was going, we realized we had people coming from our Chipley town. And we're like, they were saying, if you would start a ch uh, church like this in Chipley, it would happen. 
And so we did that as well. That's pretty incredible. You know, I want to, before we go around, I want to jump on something you said, Paul, which is really interesting. You said, we went to a second service, which nobody said would ever work in our town. And I mean, I've been doing multiple services literally since the day I, I, I started in ministry. It was through three different churches, and then one started to grow fast enough, we added a second service there. I still regularly run into leaders who are struggling with the one-service mentality, that basically we're in a small town, uh, or our church has always been one service. And the big fear is that everybody needs to know everybody. Um, how did you overcome that? Have you have the rest of you guys, have you run into that as well, where even the second service was the first barrier to go to? But I run into that question every time I'm on the road. People are like, our church doesn't want to go to a second service. And I'm kind of like, really? Anyway, talk to that. I'll say, I'll say this, Carrie. It was easy for us to go multi-site than it was to add a second service. It was when easier to do multi-site? That, really? That's when we announced that we were going to start our second campus. That was easier than announcing that we were doing a second service. We had less uh, fallout from that. What was back. the fallout? Like, sorry, we're going to come around. This is, this is, we're just freewheeling. This is fascinating because I know a lot of us have, most of the listeners are kind of like, what? And the others are like, finally, somebody's talking about this. So what is the barrier to going to a second service? Well, it was the same thing that you said. Um, we're in a town of 2,000 people, so everybody believes that they, or we started in a town of 2,000 people, so everybody believes they know everything, and they believe they know everything about everybody. <laughs> and so we we were um, about 300, 350 people at the time, and everybody thought they knew everybody in the church. And to go to two services, I probably for a year afterwards, I would meet people in town, and they would chew on me or tell me, um, we no longer coming to RCC because you destroyed our church. We don't know everybody in the church anymore. We can't meet everybody in the church. You messed up our church family. Hmm. So you lost people after you went to Yeah, we lost services. people. Every time wow. we went, added a service or added another campus, we probably lost anywhere from 50 to 150 people. Really? And what what would they say? It's not the uh, same? Basically, it's not the same. You're destroying what we had. Um, you're just trying to grow big because big is suspect in rural communities. Yes, it is. Um, and so it's like, you know, you're just trying to make something big here versus having the heart and the vision for reaching more people for Jesus Christ. That was really the pushback. Yeah. But you're also not deep enough. You're, you're really shallow is, is what we hear some of the times, too. You know, <laughs> okay, the Philip. reality is that, that you're shallow folks and you're, you're a, you know, you're a mile wide, but an inch deep. And, and it's so far from the truth, the challenges that we throw out at folks and do. But yet that's what we get accused of in small town Mississippi. Really, mile wide, inch deep. What do you get, Chad? We, we hear some of that. You know, um, we started as a revitalization and we come out here with a regional name. First West is First Baptist West Monroe. Uh, hmm. So we, you know, the name didn't care. didn't really help us a lot when we crossed the river onto the other end of the, the parish. We, we have parishes, <laughs> not counties. And a, and a lot of folks, you know, look around, okay, here comes the big church. Don't they have enough? They're coming to hurt other churches. And so you know, we had to really establish trust that we're, we're here to reach the people that aren't in yes. church. And, and we're here yep. to advocate for the big C church. And, hmm. and uh, you know, honestly, that's, that was some of the toughest ground we had to, we had to, um, to, to plow through in the early days is, is that very thing that Philip brought up that, that, hey, you know, how big's big enough? Why does First West need to be over here too? Or aren't there enough churches? Yeah. Did other churches feel threatened when you started expanding, Chad? 
Absolutely. You know, we, I, I went out of my way to meet with the pastors here. And, and we, when we started, I had learned something from a church in Arkansas of praying publicly for local churches. We call them partners. We, uh, we pray for them publicly. We call our church to pray for them each week. And uh, so I would give me a, that would give me a vehicle to go meet with these pastors and say, Hey, we want to pray for you this week. How, how can we pray for you? And, hmm. and, and it was such a guarded response at first. And uh, we've never really had a breakthrough until um, we just happened to have a volunteer here who ran the Baptist Collegiate Mission at University of Louisiana Monroe. She called me one day and a local church had called asking for volunteers for a big fall event they were trying to pull off. And she didn't have college kids to send. So I told her, don't worry about it. We'll send our people and uh, they'll wear First Baptist Sterlington shirts. And we'll just you don't even have to tell them that they came from here. We'll send them. And so we sent about 25 of our best volunteers over there to run games and booths for their fall festival. And eventually the pastor started asking questions about who all these people were. They didn't look like college kids. And what an epiphany it was for him when, when they realized, hey, Chad and the guys at First West Fairbanks campus sent their volunteers over here on a Wednesday night. And he said, well, don't hmm. they have church tonight? Don't they have kids stuff tonight? And he, yeah, we had, you know, a couple hundred uh, children and students on campus, but we sent 25 of our best folks over. And that was the first time that he began to realize that, wow, we're really not competing. We're actually mm. advocating and partnering. And it was a huge breakthrough. And, and over time, what we've seen is such a synergy between local churches that is really rare, especially in Southern Baptist world in rural USA. Philip could, could vouch for that, I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, where we truly work together. But it was really through just continually hitting our head against that wall and trying to break through that barrier of we're not here to steal your folks. We're here to reach people who, um, who aren't in anyone's church. And, and so over time that, that camaraderie, that partnership has really helped all of us grow, not just us. Philip, how about you? What were some of the, the struggles that you had in the early days? Did you have to bridge the multiple service thing? And, and yeah, I, I had, um, I guess it was about 2002, 2001. I went to uh, a couple of church plant boot camps just to try to check out oh, and yeah. see who we were going to go with and do that. And Craig Rochelle, I'll never forget, I went to the Evangelical Covenant Churches of America. It was in Seattle, and uh, Craig Rochelle was a part of that. He came to our uh, roundtable discussion, and he made a comment to me that rocked me. I mean, we went around the table. It was like eight of us around the table. And uh, he was just trying to find out who we are, where we're thinking about planting. And so obviously I was the only guy from Mississippi. I think I was the only guy <laughs> from the South. And um, I told him where I was, where I was thinking about planting. And before I could even get done, Craig Rochelle said, you're going to have the biggest problem uh, trying to influence people in your county that you need to plant a church there. He said, you're going to get big pushback from the denominational folks of Southern Baptist, Methodist, and the Presbyterians in particular. Those three denominations, you're going to catch all kind of grief from them. And it held true. Well, then fast forward. <laughs> Craig was we, right. <laughs> yeah, he was right. And then we planted, uh, we planted our church at, at that point, and we caught a lot of grief, particularly down south. Everybody thinks that there's enough churches, and I've heard Andy Stanley say before, yeah, there's a lot of churches, but there's not a safe place for people who need to come and explore and hear about God. And so really that became the drive for us. And I, I just, I remember going to meetings, trying to build friendships with a lot of pastors on the front end. Now, a lot of those guys are my friends. They realize we're here for the capital C church, but initially mm. there was a real battle because you're coming into my territory. You're trying to take my people. And I kept trying to convince them we're not interested in your people. 
Yeah. We'll probably frustrate your people. We'll probably tell your people over <laughs> and over again, we need your seat. We need so. your chair. And it was really nice, to be honest with you, uh, after we started seeing some growth, to be able to actually say that in a couple of services. I really felt good. I heard Craig Groeschel and Andy saying those things. I was like, man, I wish I could say that one day. Yeah, yeah, and no, I everybody longs arrived. for that. We need your seat. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally, one day, I was able to say, we need your seat. If you want to be out of here, get out of here, your church, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, we did that. But we, yeah, we had to fight all kinds of battles. And then going to two services was also very, very hard because we know everybody in this service. Mm-hmm. We like everybody. We invited everybody to come to this service. And so now you're asking us to split up. I mean, we've, we were family. We're friends. We came to be a part of this. And now you're asking us to split up and one to go at this hour and another one to go at this hour. So there was this real tension. Once we went to three here in Madison, it was no big deal. But that continues to be a battle yep. that we're having to fight even in our, our multi-sites now. They're, they're struggling with, we like this one service. We're in small town. Let us have one service. Even our campus pastors are struggling trying to figure out how do we go to two and three. So there are thousands of leaders listening right now who have exactly that problem. They are stuck at one service. My advice is always start a second one even if you don't need it because your attendance is probably going to go up. You need a place for your volunteers. Like if you have an orange philosophy, which we do to kids ministry, you ask the same people to serve every week. Well, they're going to miss church if you don't have a second service. So there's a thousand reasons to have two services. Just if you could drop them one or two nuggets as to how you got through that or what were some of the keys to, to getting to that second service. Then, then I got another question about uh, planting and then we'll get into some of the details. But how, how did you navigate that? What was the key? Or was there a key? You just dealt with the pain. Yeah, we bribed folks. We, uh, <laughs> we put $10 bills in everybody's chair. No, I'm just kidding. We, uh, we did our early service. We brought donuts. And so we made a big deal that if you come to the early service, you'll get a donut. And it was amazing. I'm <laughs> already going to your first service. Yeah. Because kids, kids wanted to come get a donut. So our first service, that was a great, and so that was a great ploy to have parents bring their kids uh, <laughs> That's to awesome. come into our early service and get started. Then our other two services, our middle service, which is our biggest service, we, we don't offer donuts. We just have coffee and water they can take mm. in. And last service is the same way as well. We were kind of the same way. We started adding a few incentives on the front end for the earlier service. But the big thing was just casting a a grander vision. Yeah. Going, uh, it's about those people who aren't here yet. And a lot of personal conversations for the first year, um, I probably had more sit down conversations to go um, multiple service with one on one people trying to cast a vision for it than. I had sit-down conversations to go multi-site one-on-one. Um, that's how big a jump that is. In fact, it's such a big deal that when we launched our Chipley campus this time, which is our third campus, uh, we started with two services. We started with a smaller venue so we could start in two services rather than to try to fight the battle of one. Hmm. Why did you guys, and I think you've kind of answered it already, but why didn't, why didn't you just quit? Like I, the sense I get from a lot of these leaders who are at one service is, I just can't deal with the opposition. Why did you decide it was worth a price? Let me say this. It, we're, we're in small towns, but our counties, for example, the county that Bluntstown campus is in is only 13,000, 14,000 people. Only 10% of that population attends a church. The same That's way good. with our Chipley campus. Only about 10, about two, 2,300, 2,500 people attend church in that county. And then the Mariana campus, it's a county of about 45,000 people and probably about 10 to 15 percent of that population. And so there are so many people who need to be reached for Jesus Christ. And, and you can't. 
you just can't quit because there's no churches reaching them. That that was the driving force for us as well, Carrie. We, we our mm. county, even though we're in, we call ourselves the uh, belt buckle of the Bible Belt. Basically, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're we're sure. right there. And uh, so for us, our county right here is the wealthiest county in the state of Mississippi, but 68% of the people in this county do not go to church, don't think God is relevant. The reservoir campus where we are, about 68 to 70% there, but up north, about 75 to 78% of the people do not go to church anywhere. They've given up on church, Mm -hmm. given up on God. And so for us, it's just constant vision casting of this is not for us. This is not for us. It's on the, we're trying to reach that next person. Who's that next person that we need to be reaching? That's good. Now, I got to ask you guys, and I'll start with you, Chad. Why did you decide to go multi-site as opposed to just full-out church planting? In other words, stay at one location and just launch out. Send a leader, separate church, separate budget, separate governance. Why did you pick multi-site? Great question. We, we were in process of evaluating what church multiplication looked like for us. Mm-hmm. Those statistics the guys were talking about carry very, very similarly here, 10% or less in church on any given Sunday. Wow despite the fact that it feels like there's a church on every corner. Mm-hmm. And so we were interested in revitalization, but it really uh, it's really hard to find that middle person to bring you to a church that needs revitalized. Um, <laughs> so we, we weren't sure how that might work. We're looking at church planting. Do we want to fund a network or, or you know, start an internship or a residency to send out planters? And then all of a sudden, a church in the region, the church, actually, it's the campus that I pastor now, uh, reached out and, and just said, hey, we don't know what, what to do, but we're a dying church. We're willing to admit that. Uh, we can we can show you the date on the calendar that we're going to go out of business and we need some mm. help. And I, I don't think they knew what that meant when they made that call. Um, but through through some discussion and just through, honestly, some amazing heroes of the faith that were willing to to say, we don't want to see one less church in a growing in a growing town. Uh, they were willing. They ended up giving us this property. Uh, they went out of business, met with us at the original campus for a while, and then we restarted it as a multi-site campus, and sort of a blurry line between church plant and and multi-site. Um, sure. But honestly, it it really happened out of opportunity from that phone call during the midst of just really evaluating what would be the next steps. God just really made it easy. Cool. How about uh, Paul Philip? What about you guys? Why not? traditional church planting? Yeah, so I was uh, I, I was kind of thrown into it, just to be honest with you. I was a church planter at heart, and when we merged with the other church that we merged with, uh, they were doing two sites. It was one in Jackson at the time I was telling you about, and then they had the Madison campus. So they they've filtered into our Madison campus, the Madison folks from the high school, and they kept their South Jackson. We had our South um, campus that was going on. And uh, so we just kind of got into dual campuses. And by that point, the pastor of the other church is a dear friend of mine, Eric Smith. Um, Eric was from Corinth, Mississippi. And Eric said, hey, um, I was a drug runner pusher in high school. And I've got friends up there that need Jesus really bad. And we're launching a campus up there uh, next month. So we merge in September, October. We're planting another campus um, in four hours north of us. And that began to happen. We began to see some pretty amazing things happen there. And then we had a church planting friend of ours who was at the Reservoir Campus, uh, about 20 minutes southeast of us here. And he called us out of the blue in November and said, man, I see what you guys are doing. Uh, I am a church planter, but I realize I am more of a campus pastor than I am a church planter. 
And I want to turn over the keys to our building. I want to turn over our church uh, to you guys and fall under your leadership and be under you guys and trust your leadership. And he became our campus pastor out there. So really for us, for me, it just kind of fell into my lap. I really Yeah, it was kind of situational, right? More yeah, than philosophical. Yeah. Paul, yeah. Uh, vision-based, what was it? But why not um, campuses or why not church plants? The big thing was our team at the time um, was more geared to be a multi-site team because, as Philip just said, uh, the guys that we had on our team that really could lead probably felt more like they fed it, felt it, uh, fell in the role of a campus pastor more than a lead pastor. Gotcha. And so that was the that was the biggest reason. And so we uh, said, okay, with our team, let's go multi-site. Let's try that. See how it happens. We had one or two people at the time who probably would have loved to be like a lead pastor, but we just knew that they would go out and go rogue real quickly. And so we said, you know, where we're at as a, as a church with a team, let's go the multi-site path. And once we got into it, it just became a very clear path that we had done the right thing. Do any of you guys use video at your locations? We started as video. We, we're not now, but we started, we started that way and moved to live teaching. Okay, gotcha. How about you, Philip? Yeah, we're video now. We do all video. Our multi-sites know that they'll never have live teaching. Wow. How about you, Paul? We uh, we stream as well. We stream live video to um, our um, Bluntstown campus and our Chipley campus. Wow. Now, one of the other things I hear all the time, particularly the smaller the community, the more I hear this. I hear from church leaders who are like, video will never work. They want a real person. Like, we're relational. All this stuff you're talking about. So just... Speak into that for a moment in your experience. And we've got to go in both ways. Two out of three doing live video. Uh, and then, Chad, you guys started and now you're at live local teaching. I'm just curious, like just because I believe video works. You know, we've we've got video in cities of 130,000 and 30,000. Um, one of our sites is only known video. Nobody nobody complains. They get used to it. But I hear that all the time. Video won't work. I, You know, here's my theory. Half the time. Uh, now, go ahead. You guys talk. I'll save my theory for another day. <laughs> we use video. One of the things that we did, we said, okay, if we're going to go video in a rural community, it has to be excellent. And so we stream uh, what we call multiple video signals and one audio signal all sync. So we have a full-size uh, screen in the middle. We do the close-up uh, iMag on the side. So it feels like a, a very much a... a, a in-person experience as much as you can doing that because we even do our stages with the same design and the same light setting as as what we're streaming from um, mm -hmm. as close as possible and so we also try to stream in 1080p which gives a real high definition and we shoot our center screens with laser projectors which uh, reduces all pixelization basically and gives you a really 3d image but the big thing is that we've discovered is this is that um the thing that we always say is what a person makes up their mind, whether they're going to attend a church or not in the first 10 minutes. Wow. And it's pretty interesting that we say that. And then we go, but if you have video, they're not going to come. Well, here's what we really discovered. <laughs> if people feel a warm welcome yep. and they experience like the sense of community and that we were prepared for them while they may at first have kind of, oh, I don't know if I like that video thing. You know, that streaming thing, it depends on whether they have a positive outlook coming in or whether they have a negative outlook coming in based upon their experience before the talk. In fact, the other thing um, 
that is just really interesting is that most of the time we don't have pushback on people about video who are under 45 years of age. Isn't that interesting? So yeah. younger, no problem at all. They, they, in fact, I'll tell this real quick story. We have a guy who's about 33 years of age. He was at one of our video venues one time. He had been attending one that I was in person and I used an illustration in the story that I guess was so similar to his situation that he told someone that he would never go back to a venue where I was in person because he knew that because he was not in the room that I was speaking in, when I use that illustration in that story, it was not that me speaking directly to him, but it was the Holy Spirit. And he was just saying, this is absolutely amazing. God is speaking to me and I know God is speaking because it is video, video where most people would say, well, if the pastor's not in the room, how do we know the Holy Spirit's moving? Mm, and that's the younger fascinating. Yeah, the younger generation goes, uh, we know the Holy Spirit's moving. So the only questions we get are normally people 45 or 50 or older. So I'll top you, Paul, because um, <laughs> I don't know if the Holy Spirit works with us because we record our services on Thursday. <laughs> I knew you did that, Philip. You told so me ours that. are not even live. So I don't know how God shows up on Sunday because we're not live. <laughs> he does, though. Um, and and so do we, you we, have to overcome pushback or do you get pushback? Oh, man, yeah. We, we, we caught all kinds of pushback initially, but our campus up north, uh, four hours of us, we told them from the very beginning, that's all you're going to be as a video venue. They've had no issues. There have been no problems. People have said, um, yeah, we don't really like the video venue. We're not really sold on all of that, but we love what's going on. We love what you guys are doing. So we can overlook all of that because we're seeing life change take place. We're seeing people's stories being changed. So they're willing to do that. Now, the Reservoir campus that is close to our campus here, they had live teaching. You know, we merged with them. So they had live teaching. So they were used to having somebody live. And since we merged with them and brought them on, we have not done live teaching there. And we've caught some struggles there. People going, ah, we just like having Benton, our campus pastor, teach. We're used to hearing him. We don't really want to watch you guys on video. Uh, so we record on Thursday, and then they upload it into a cloud, Vimeo, and then we show it on projector at all of our campuses. Wow. And Chad, you went the opposite direction. Started with video, and now you're at live local teaching. Tell, tell us about that. We, we made a very bad assumption that having a TV broadcast made it easy to do video venue. <laughs> and, uh, and so we we didn't realize what an interruption that was to the TV broadcast crew. So we were taking a recording of an 8 a.m. service, the first of three services at the, the broadcast campus, and bringing a copy out here to our campus. We also um, really underestimated the difference in culture and just um, context after crossing the river. That river is a, is a great physical divide. Hmm. Um, the cultures are wildly different. Even though it's 16, 17 miles apart, it's it's just um, a lot further in, than that contextually and culturally. And uh, and then we also began to look around and realize that we, we have a just abnormally amount of great teachers on our staff. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe while we were struggling trying to figure out how to, to bridge the context and cultural gap of the river and the distance, um, we didn't need to do that. We, we may, may have a, a better opportunity to make use of these teachers. Also, during that time, there were some, some, uh, some, transitioning happen, some transitioning that was happening where our former lead pastor was, was transitioning into a new role in Tennessee. And so it just made a lot of sense for us to, um, to go to a team teaching model 
And then we began to grow out of that. And so we've stuck with it ever since. It just seems to work. It seems to allow for a lot more um, relational context uh, with, within the community. Um, there, there seems to be a lot more opportunity for people to, uh, to find themselves in that model where they were, they were finding ways to disconnect from it previously for us. And uh, I'm not, I'm not sold that it's impossible in our context. I just don't think we started well enough to go back to it. If that makes sense. Mm. Mm. No, I, I hear that. And there are logistics. And what I love about this conversation is we've proven that whatever is going to work best you can do. And two of you have video going extremely well in like tiny contexts, like village contexts and uh, some are live teaching. What I was going to say earlier is most of the time when I hear video won't work, it's from a campus pastor who would rather teach. That That's what mm. I really think is driving yeah. that. It's, it's a campus pastor who says, I want to teach. Well, there's a difference between I want to teach and video doesn't work. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, well, Gary, it's, it's just, yeah, go ahead. Gary, I think, uh, cause I spent some time with Chad and he told me the mm. story and how they transitioned. And, and I think he's so right. I think if you start something well, it's easier to build on it yes. than if something doesn't start well, especially on the video side. And when he told me their story, I was like, wow, he had a couple crash and burn experiences just as they were learning. And it was like, it, it probably was the right thing, especially with their leadership oh, transition yeah. that happened, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and so, I think, um, I think you can totally do live local teaching. Like I think, I think that can mm-hmm. be an amazing thing. I just, you know, would be of the view that video also works. And so you got to figure out what's going to help us reach more people. And I'll say this, one of the reasons that we do it is because in our context, um, we are, our average household income is like $35,000 a year per household Wow! wow. For, for every county that we're in. That's about where it's at. And so we have to run a very lean staff. And so one of the other reasons that video, we stuck with the video side of it is because we only have now one person that is planning a sermon every week and everybody else can pastor and equip and lead. And so for us, with that kind of income, we, we, we're pretty rural in the context, not just uh, of the demographic, but also of the uh, income factor as well. Yeah, that would be, that. that's a really good point. How, because it is rural and it's small town, um, how have you raised money for this kind of ministry? Because multi-site brings you efficiencies, but clearly you're not the $130,000 a year church with, you know, 100 people in it. So how, how, do, you, how do you raise the bar, raise the vision in a small rural context? You know, somebody asked me that question some years ago um, when we were building out our Mariana campus because it was about a $2 million build out and we did it debt free. Mm-hmm. And um, they said there was another church. They were asking how could they do that um, in a rural context as well. And as I really started reflecting and looking back in 2004, 2005, we started really pushing the small group model. And part of that was we just started pushing financial peace. That was the big um, Mm. finance um, stewardship program back in the day. And we still use that. And that just became, if you led at RCC, uh, you had to go through financial peace. And what we began to realize is that people started getting debt free and they started giving and they give generously. In fact, our people give so generously, but it started by getting them debt free. And that mm. really is how we've been able to do it is we just keep financial peace in front of people and we help people get out of debt. And instead of paying interest, they can, you know, give to the vision. 
That's amazing. Yeah. We also um, do the financial piece twice a year. So we, we're, we're firm believers in that. I, I, we're not as good as Paul when it comes to really asking their leaders to go through it. And that's one of the things I wish we would have thought about in our DNA, really trying to push that because we, we believe in what, what is being taught there and being able to be debt free. We're debt free. We're on 15 acres of land, like I said, in one of the wealthiest counties, the wealthiest county in Mississippi. Uh, and I, I firmly believe the reason why is what Andy Stanley, Sean Lovejoy, guys that I read and, and, and just love, talk about vision. Um, I have a statement when I talk to folks and do stuff. People will give to vision, they'll serve to vision, and they'll go with vision. Yep. And those three things really are what drive us. So I'm constantly trying to cast vision about what God's calling us to do, um, how we need to support, how we need to reach more people. We're doing things that nobody else is trying so let's do it. It's been phenomenal to watch how God has done that. Um, I mean, I, I can't disclose a lot because we're in the process right now, some financial things, but just people that have walked into us, I've got unchurched guys who walk up to me and write a $10,000 check because they see what our campuses are doing. We do a thing called Second Sunday. We're on the second Sunday of every month. We're serving our communities on Sunday. And we've got people in the marketplace that see our church, see our folks out serving on a Sunday. And they're like, what are you guys doing? Aren't you supposed to be in church? We go, no, we are the church. This is what the church is. We're serving our community. And we got people that will write checks, will call us up out of the blue and come sit down with me and write checks that God's just blowing our mind. We don't pass an offering basket. We never have. Uh, we have baskets in the back of the room and we've met budget. Our budget this year will be over a million dollars and we'll meet and exceed that just because of God's generosity. But I believe also it's just part of leadership, casting vision, constantly mm -hmm. casting vision. I agree. And I think, I think, uh, Carrie, I would say this, I, I hung out with Philip, of course, on that trip for a week. And then I went and spent some time with him the other week and I hung out with Chad. I want to tell you, these two guys, there's two of the best vision casters that I've ever been around. Mm. And they're, they're inspiring to be around. And I think that's what has to happen in rural community and context for it to work. And I know why there are people buy into them because they are that good at vision casting. Carrie, I, I think for us, there's two things that, that have really been phenomenal in the growth of our church multiplication vision. One is our West Monroe campus, the original campus, is an extraordinarily generous church. Mm -hmm. Our budget is way bigger than it should be for, for a church our size. Um, people just typically have been phenomenal givers, especially to mission and to reaching the lost. And so one of the things that, that our former pastor, John Avant, taught me that, uh, that John called casting huge vision through small, relatable stories. Hmm. And so we, oh. we paint the, the broad stroke vision for people, but it seems too big and it almost seems comfortable to let other people who are bigger leaders or who we perceive as bigger players to chase after that vision. And so we celebrated stories of life change and stories of need and stories of accomplishment that meets those kind of needs within our church for months before we ever broadcast the need to merge with this little church in Sterlington, Louisiana. And people were so ready for it. We also uh, worked really hard to find commonalities between the, the, um, the, the ministries that were already ongoing that were working that people were excited about and how those would reach the passions and the unique needs of this, this next location. And so people uh, take that big vision and they find their small piece of it and they're really willing to give time and resources to that. See, I love this. You guys in so many ways are just overcoming 
barriers that so many churches think are impossible to overcome. I mean, size of the village, um, multiple campuses in a rural context, multiple services, um, getting over the financial hurdle. And I, I would just echo what you guys are saying, too. We run something called the Financial Learning Experience through uh, Joe Sangle and ISS uh, Stewardship Solutions. And I got to tell you, we've run like 700 people through the financial learning experience. And basically, it's just helping them find financial freedom. And mm. that that is so good. If you do something for people, then they want, you know, if they can live with margin, then they can live on mission. And so we want to help them find margin. I think I think that's great. Okay, I got to ask you, because we have a lot of people listening who probably thought rural multi-site or multi-site in their context, what, you know, it was just for big suburban churches with gajillions of dollars and, you know, famous preachers. So you guys are reaching people using this model. If you had to, in, in each of your experiences, give us one or two essentials that you would say, okay, if you're going to do rural multi-site, this is what you need to focus on, or here's, here's the best thing we've done. What would that be? Philip, can we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, number one, the campus pastor needs to be a guy from that community. We learned that really, really the hard way. We had a guy that came in and did a phenomenal job at our campus four hours north um, and did a phenomenal job, left, um, and and then we had to bring on a new guy, and we got this guy in the community, and he's excelled. I mean, people love this guy. They know him. So I would say, number one, having a leader that is from that community is massive. And then secondly— is really just just helping. I, I spent time up there, but really training, uh, helping the leadership understand the mission and vision of what you're about. Um, because one of the things, as you know, with a four hour distance, I mean, it, it's not easy to get there. It's in the yeah. corner of the state. So for us, it's really, really hard. So you've got to really, really work hard at embedding the mission and vision and the values and the culture you're trying to create to make sure it works for them. And, and the reality is the context is a little bit different. I mean, we're talking about blue collar uh, are the types of folks mm. that are in Mississippi and the northern part of the state versus where we are right here. They're CEOs, attorneys, doctors, those kind of folks. So the context is something that we have to really, really study and understand. And we have to help our campus pastors try to understand that context. But also, how does our mission and vision fit into that context? How, how much accommodation do you have to make based on the culture? Like, clearly, it's the same message because you guys are video. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. That's what's so beautiful about it, Carrie. God is using it because we're, we're doing messages. We, we build them around themes like, every, like probably most of us mm-hmm. do. And so we build around felt needs, you know, family life, uh, living as a follower of Christ, raising kids, how to take that to the marketplace. So we, we do some real felt need type series uh, that help folks. And that's why I believe it, it just trans, it transfers in every context for us, quite honestly. And the gospel transfers in every context as well. So you just have to think about that in advance and then, yeah. you know, make the small accommodation and away you go. Paul, how about you? Yeah. One or two or three core essentials for people thinking about doing multi-site in a smaller context? Well, I would like to echo what Philip just said is I really feel like leadership either has to be from that community or they have to understand rural community. Mm-hmm. I really feel like that. Um, if they don't understand rural community, it's going to be really hard because when you think you're going too slow in rural community, you probably need to slow down just a little bit more um, <laughs> because people like their space. And so that's one of the things. The other thing is, is uh, what Philip said, the whole thing of vision, mission, bought in. 
Like now, when we send a campus pastor out, we want them on our staff at least uh, two years before we send them out to be a campus pastor. And then the third thing I would say is everything has to be more relational. Mm. Um, the assimilation process has to involve more personal touch. Um, you know, we're kind of founded on, as I said earlier, the North Point Three environment kind of model, mm-hmm. but we also focus real heavily on the three relationships that move people to each environment, that we're moving them from a, a guest to a friend to a family member. Everything has to be so much more relational. We we just really stress the John Maxwell principle of walk slowly through the crowd, that um, our campus pastors, and they have to be so much more people relational, so much more people heavy uh, in, in their um, day-to-day um, process. It's, it's just huge. The relational part is so much bigger. Mm, that's good. Mm. Chad, how about you? A couple of uh, key multi-site principles. Yeah, for me, I think one of the keys are the the hub of the community is not as readily visible in a rural setting. Yep. Like I said before, some of the some of the communities in our area are more of an idea than a defined geography. Yeah, yeah. So there there aren't really um, main streets or commerce hubs. So a lot of times the schools become the hub, or a lot of times a, a recreational area or some uh, passionate cause becomes the hub. We have to be willing to take um, to take time to understand what people care about, and then find out what their passions and and and, and their their unique um, causes how they fit into the overall vision of of the church and how that that affects lostness in the area so for us we we really seek to find those unique hubs and then the unique passions within those hubs and then capitalize on that to to uh, to achieve the mission mm-hmm. so i said that first because what 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 we've really learned is especially for us there are such differences between the three campuses that we have to hold loosely the methods while holding tightly to the mission. Yeah. And so we, we, we hold tightly to the DNA things that, that make us the same. We t- mm-hmm. hold tightly to the mission and, and the things that we've defined as the win and the unique, uh, the right. unique expression of the church here at First West. But we have to hold loosely and give a lot of permission to key leaders who understand those hubs and passions in the unique context to, to uh, exact those in the most uh, efficient way and effective way within u- very different communities. And so we, we, uh, we, we tend to function over an, an overarching theme with a lot of room for uniqueness in, in methodology. And I think that's really key, especially when you start spreading out across like Philip four hours or, or mm-hmm. the, the diversity in town sizes like Paul and I are dealing with. Um, that, that seems to be one of the, one of the things that we stumbled upon that's a big win for us. So here's a question that every leader gets, regardless of your size, but I got to ask it in your context, leadership development. Where do you find these campus pastors? Where do you develop your staff and team? Like, you know, it's not exactly like you've got leading seminaries next door or, you know, you're in a, you're in a city that is just attracting people. Like sometimes it can be very hard in a rural context to attract anyone from the outside. So where do your leaders come from and how do you develop them? I think, Gary, that's probably the hardest thing when it comes to multi-site uh, leadership, uh, because rural communities are not necessarily leadership magnets. Right. Um, and leaders, great leaders that rise up in rural communities don't normally stay there. So one of, one of the things that we started doing some years ago is I personally 
lead a leadership small group that is 12 months long where every year where I just basically uh, shoulder tap a group of men and women and invite them into a small group. Um, we meet once a month and we have stuff at books that we read a book for every month and we have conversations every month. And it, that's that's really been the key for us. As I look back, uh, I probably started that in 2007, 2008. And that has been probably the best leadership pipeline of, of just then having them move out and use that same kind of material, those same principles to develop their leaders. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard to do that. But you have to have some kind of leadership pipeline if you're going to do multi-site. Do you tell yeah. them ahead of time when you're tapping them on the shoulder that you've got an eye on them for leadership or do you just kind of do that? What it, like, how, do, how do you recruit into that group? I just tell them I see their potential and I think they have uh, a higher level inside of them. And I would just like to spend a year with them and see where it takes them. Cool. Um, don't don't necessarily put a lot of pressure on you need to have this role or position at the end. Just saying we see a higher level in you. would like to take you and see what happens. Chad, Philip, yeah. what do you guys do? One of the things I was going to say I, just about Paul, I, I, the things I've learned about Paul having been with him in Guatemala just has a real intentionality about developing leaders. And, and that's been really, really cool. He's really kind of encouraged me in that line. We, we've worked hard on that. Part of our struggle is um, our guys are all bivocational. We, we mm -hmm. don't have our none of our campus pastors accepted our main campus. Madison is a full time. Everybody else has their own business. And right. so they work full-time jobs. And then on top of that, they're taking on this church responsibility. So these guys are usually already great leaders. And so we know that we've watched that they've come through our DNA. Uh, like the guy it's at our, our current campus, he was baptized, came to Christ through our ministry there. So this guy has a real wow. understanding of our DNA, what we're mm -hmm. about. And it's been phenomenal to watch what God's done. And he was discipled by a guy and really taught through that. So what we do is we have all staff one uh, Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month. So they're, they're required to come into that. So we pour into the, to them at that point. And then our Madison campus pastor was also co-teaching with me. He does about 50% of the teaching and I do the other 40, 50. Um, ben then meets weekly, whether it's by Skype or, you know, whatever, FaceTime with all of our campus pastors. And he's talking to them, mission, vision, making sure the communication lines are there pouring into them. What are things that you've got that you need to deal with? Because a lot of these guys are used to dealing with business side of things. Well, you just fire somebody, you fire somebody because they're not doing the job. Mm. Well, ministry, you just can't quite do that. You got to really kind of walk through some things. You want to make sure you're doing things the way that is honoring God and honoring them and all of that stuff. So he's coaching them because he's got a seminary degree. Most of our guys do not have a seminary degree. They just have a degree in hard knocks and uh, experience. <laughs> and uh, are great guys. And, and so we find these guys who are leaders who've kind of come up through our ranks and understand who we are, and we just start pouring into them. Great. Chad, any tips on leadership development for you guys? Sure. For us, it's a combination of just what these guys have been speaking of. We try to hire mm -hmm. from for, with, uh, with a future forward-thinking mind for multiplication at all times. We're trying to hire guys that can grow into future church planters or campus pastors. Uh, so, and then also for me personally, I came out of corporate America. You know, I'm one of those guys that, that got tapped on the shoulder and, and asked the hard question, what's God doing in you? How does mm. that fit in the kingdom? And, um, and so we're trying to do both of those. We, we have tons of leaders and I find that those leaders are attracted to big vision. And so we keep telling the stories of the wins of these leaders that grow and, and the leaders who are making an impact. 
and they find themselves in those stories and they're coming to us as much as we're coming to them. This is great. Well, Paul, you've already hinted at this a little bit, but that leadership development in a rural context can be the hardest thing you do. I want to ask that question more broadly. What has been the hardest part of multi-site for each of you? For us, it's been just constant transition, Carrie. We, we mm. have uh, been through transition of leadership. Uh, we went through a period of time where we weren't sure we were going to be a church plant or a, or a campus. It kind of depended on mm. who the next lead pastor would be. Um, and then also through all those transitions, there have been multiple opportunities for expectations to grow individually yeah. within, within central services, within different ministries. And so just kind of keeping a highly contextual model of multi-site, but everyone calibrated to the same vision and overarching principles with allow, without allowing those individual expectations to cause tensions. I think mm. that's been tough. Appreciate that. For us, it's been uh, really the, the financial side of things because of who we're trying to reach people who are far from God. So they're not givers right off the first mm-hmm. year, two years. So you have this budget discrepancy and issues. So we can't finance it. So we have to go in part time. There are a lot of megachurches around us who are going into cities, you know, planting these campuses and they have four full time staff. Well, everybody that's on our staff team is immediately part time. They're doing something else. So trying to do leadership development, trying to get all of that is extremely difficult. And the second thing I would say is uh, for us, we hear it often, periodically, not, not a lot, but um, this idea of, well, we can't see you, we can't touch you, we can't have an appointment with you, mm-hmm. we just don't really know if we can be a part of this church. And so those kind of things, but those are usually church people, and we just kind of take it for what it's worth and, and you move on. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> would you add anything to that? Um, I would agree with uh, what each one of the Philip and uh, Chad have said that are the hard things. Those are very hard. The finance side is hard. I mean, that's really hard as well because you have to, I think you have to operate leaner uh, when you're in mm-hmm. a rural area. Yeah. But I think for the me, the personal thing that I've had to deal with um, is having to give up uh, some pretty significant personal relationships on the journey mm-hmm. because not everybody wants to go on the journey with you. And there have mm-hmm. been some really very significant relationships to me that um, there were days that we had to take different paths because we felt like God was calling us as a church to go to another level. And some of the people who are really close friends uh, didn't want to do that because of just what Philip said is, uh, well, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to lose you or lose this kind of connection with you, those kind of things. If I I were just going to the gut level and Mm. being real honest about this, of all the hard things we've had to go through, and we've had to give up, had to go through a lot of hard things. Uh, the personal relationships I've had to give up—that's been the hardest thing. And can I jump in, Carrie? I, I want to mm-hmm. second that. That is absolutely correct. I, I mean, we have lost some really great friends that got the initial vision of reaching people who are far from God, but the moment we went, we merged that that kind of blew up in, in their faces, and then the multi-site and man. I mean, we're talking about people that you've been on vacation with, that your kids yeah. love, and and we're still trying to work through that and build friendship. But I mean, it it just takes a toll on you. But you feel called by God to do this, and so therefore you just got to do it. And it, it's been difficult. That that I didn't think that would take as much of a toll as it has on me over the last two years. I appreciate that, and I have been there. It's kind of interesting, Philip. You say that is that in the last two years. It, it is interesting that you get to 45, 50 years of age and you mm-hmm. think, okay, we're going to have this circle of friends that we'll do life together with. 
And all of a sudden you start realizing God's calling you to the next level and you realize uh, I've got to start with a new circle of friends. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, And if you can hang on to a couple along the way, my wife and I were just having that conversation. Sometimes there's just a few that kind of go through every phase and they are, they are golden, but yeah, I think almost every, and you know, Sometimes I think that's when I look back on my life because I could have done something better or maybe I should have been, you know, X or Y. And sometimes I think it's just inevitable. We live in a fallen world. It doesn't always work out the way you want. I'm not sure you'd play it differently if you had to play it again. And I'm not sure that anybody was really as a at fault. It just kind of happened that way. Right. And that's right. right. And, but that is definitely the most painful. And I was telling a friend this morning, if that stops hurting, that's even a bigger issue. Then then that means your heart died or it means you've, you've become callous or, or whatever. So I get that. And I I appreciate, you know, thank you for going there. And what I just want to say to the leaders who are listening is, I hope you're picking up the theme of this conversation, which seems to be that all three guys here have had to overcome huge obstacles, internal, external, personal, and and they're doing something that quite literally, I think every expert on multi-site a decade ago would have said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. This is impossible. But when you think about all the small towns and villages and hamlets where the gospel's going dark, where there isn't a life-giving church in the community, I, re- I really think this this is huge. And, you know, a lot of the times, those of us who aren't doing what you're doing, we sit back and go, oh, it must just be easy. Of course, if it was easy for me, I'd be doing it too. But I think there's one thing I pulled away from this conversation is that very little of this has been easy, has it? Very it's little. It's not easy at all. Not easy at all. That's exactly right. There are many nights pastoring for 20-something years now. I think, Philip, how long have you been? Yeah, on this 20 plus years as well. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, I tell everybody, it's easy to be an overnight success after 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a long yeah. night. Yeah. I mean, we went <laughs> yeah, many long, years. Long we were in the, we, we went many years where we were just 100, 125. And then you start seeing God doing some amazing things. And uh, it, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I, I know that if God would have told me the details beforehand, I'm not quite sure I would have been ready for it, to be honest. Yeah, with you guys. may not have signed up, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Let me let me yeah. say this and saying how hard it is, it's so worth it. Absolutely. I'm going to try to yeah. say this without getting choked up here. Yeah. But Easter Sunday, we had over 100 first time commitments to Jesus yeah. Christ. That's incredible. And that's what makes it worth it. That's right. That's exactly right. I love that. I love that. I was talking to a, a counselor this morning who doesn't go to our church, and he counsels couples who had walked away from each other. They were not followers of Christ. They ended up coming to our church, and he's now counseling them, and they're talking about their church and what God's doing and how God—and, Paul, you're exactly right. It's those stories. We saw people here at Madison give their life to Christ, met a guy who was from Cleveland, Ohio. By the way, I've got to hook him up for a good church in Cleveland, Ohio, if anybody knows of a good I church know up one. there. Cedar okay, Creek. good. I want to get it from Ben Snyder. Okay, Cedar Creek. Yep. Okay, yes. Cedar Creek. That's ben awesome. awesome. Mm-hmm. Ben's uh, phenomenal. This guy. This guy is a model. I mean, he is a male model. A very sharp-looking guy. Well-built guy. He comes down here because his agent is here. He's part of our friendship network. This friend goes to another traditional church in the area. He brings him to our church because he knows this guy can come here and be himself and fit in. The guy comes Easter weekend from Cleveland, Ohio, and gives his life to Christ this weekend. He hugs me with tears in his eyes. I've never seen this guy before. 
with tears in his eyes, he's hugging me going, man, thank you. I've never experienced anything like this before in my life. You've changed my life. And we know what he means by that, but yeah. So you said Cedar what? Cedar Creek Church. Okay. Ben Snyder with a Y, S-N-Y-D-E-R. Good friend, great leader. Yeah, he's uh, an amazing leader. Chad, what's so rewarding for you? He really is an amazing leader. Hey, uh, where do you guys see multi-site heading in the next five years? Like when you think about the future and you think about, you know, fewer churches and churches dropping like flies. Philip, before we went to air, you said something about... Um, you know, picking up churches and churches that were yeah. dying and, and uh, there's still resistance to really what's going to make a difference in the future. So tell us about that. Yeah, I, um, I have friends that are, are on the boards and on different denominational leaders. So I'm not talking about one specific. I'm talking about multiple yeah, yeah, yeah. denominations yeah. that I've got friendships with. And, and I'm hearing from all of them that their churches by hundreds, they're closing the doors all over the state of Mississippi. So in conversation with these guys, I've said, hey, listen, are there leaders in these communities that you think could be potential leaders, bivocational type leaders that we could come in and invest and use our video? Because our videos are done. It doesn't cost anything. If you've got Wi-Fi and a projector, you can use our videos mm-hmm. and, 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 and do what we're doing in your small towns and being a part of that. So I, um, I talked to some guys, and the statement that I hear from denominational leaders is, well, that's really great, but we just don't, we don't think we're going to do that. We're just going to let the door shut down. We're going to try to figure out who to give the building to or what we need to do. Right. And it just breaks my heart because I'm going, there are people who are far from God, and God has used us in a very unique way, in a very non-threatening way, come-as-you-are type way to be able to take this into rural Mississippi why would anybody want to, I mean, because the proof is in the pudding. I mean, people are coming to Christ, lives mm-hmm. are being changed, marriages are being restored. Why would you not want that in your community? And I have people literally all over the state that come to me and go, hey, can we be a part of this? And so I think where are we going uh, as far as the next five years? I think one of the things we're going to see uh, is this idea of strategic partnerships yep. where uh, a lot of co- uh, churches are going to have their own finances I think they're going to be able to have maybe their own board, but they may realize, hey, I'm a bivocational guy. I'm called to reach the people of my community, but I'm not called to preach. I'm called to pastor and love on people, but I can't preach. Hey, there's a guy in my community who will give it to us for free. Let's use his video teaching, and then I'm just going to campus pastor and love you guys. Well, then go for it. Here's our video. You can upload our video if you want our systems. If you want any of our other stuff, we'll give it to you for free. So be a part of that. So I think strategic partnerships are where a lot of folks are going to go. And that way it's not going to be a financial burden on the main campus or the main church. I think that's going to be a huge move in the next few five, five, six years or so. Chad, where do you see all this going in the next few years? Especially in a rural setting, I, I see multi-site is becoming more understood and a little less scary. And so mm-hmm. I think it's going to become a greater, greater and greater option for revitalization of those churches Philip was just, just describing. I also see that multi-site is going to be the the platform to plant churches out of. I think that we're right. going to be making a lot of grandparents mm-hmm. out of descending original campuses. And um, that, that multiplication mindset is so much easier to build in a portable church where, where people don't understand that they're um, – that they're part of a, a building church. They, they understand mm-hmm. they put the, the building in a trailer every week, and a lot of the multi-sites are that. They've also got a, le- a lot less um, preconceived history as a multi-site. And so that, that multiplication mindset has built so much more readily that I think a lot of these campuses are ready to do something. I see them launching out. That's great. How about you, Paul? What do you see in the next five years for rural 
churches and communities? I definitely agree with Chad. I think the multiplication mindset is really being just moved forward with multi-site and even in the rural communities. I think uh, where I see, I feel like the multi-site um, movement is going in rural areas is what I would say, and, and I'm not sure if everybody understands this, but the dollar general model, that's kind of mm-hmm. like a little store in the South that just is everywhere on every corner. And they come in and put about a seven or 8,000 square foot store in, and it competes with Walmart. It competes with the big box. And people go there because they, they feel it's more personal. So I see, and we've even kind of experimented this with our Chipley campus, of the, the dollar general model, especially, we'll do it with more excellence, obviously, but um, it will become the footprint. You'll go into a rural community, put a smaller venue in, uh, you'll be able to staff it with two or three staff members. Uh, you can, you can, it can pay for itself basically with 200 to 250 people and you give people what they want. You give them a smaller venue in their community and it has a greater impact. I mean, just for example, the Chipley campus has been there for seven months, eight months. Um, there's about 250 people that attend that campus. It was nominated last month by the chamber of commerce as one of the businesses of the year. It was, it was one of the top. I mean, wow. you know, that's the kind of impact that I see um, rural churches having as we launch out into other small areas because you you can create a bigger community impact. And if you had time to listen to Philip's story, Chad's story, they could tell you how much that they're creating ripples in their communities. And you're, you're able to change the whole town and raise the tide of leadership, raise the tide of excellence, raise the tide of community mm-hmm. in a whole town just through that smaller footprint. And even families that are back together again and, you know, people who are taking responsibility for their life and, and showing love to their neighbor. I had somebody in my community here in Canada who doesn't go to church, not a Christian, um, bend my ear the other day and just say, something has been lost now that there's the church is no longer the center of the community. And what I can see, and, and what I love about where you guys see this going is, yeah, some may be church plants, some may be strategic partnerships, and some may be campuses. The answer to all that is yes. Um, mm-hmm. But could you imagine the day where churches that are alive and vital are actually fostering church plants all over small towns, villages, hamlets, communities, so that every community has got a center? Because as somebody who did rural ministry, for 12 years. I mean, our church was the biggest venue and the biggest thing going in the community. In many ways, it was the heart of the community. And our, our Mariana mm-hmm. campus, it had 211 community events in 2016. Events wow. that had nothing to do with RCC, that they just held. It has become the community center, the civic center of, of the um, Mariana area. And it helps answer that question, you know, that we all ask, if our church was to disappear overnight, would anybody notice? Would anybody miss? Yeah. Yep. And I think in a small yep. town, the answer is yes. Well, I got to tell you guys, this has been fascinating. We're over an hour and a quarter. Um, amazing conversation. You've given a lot of hope to people. And I want, I want people, I know they're going to want to drill down more. Now, obviously, we have show notes. So you just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com, click on blog or search rural multi-site. You'll find this. Um, I'll give you the exact tag uh, a little bit later, um, but I know they're going to drill down. So, Chad Merrill, let's start with you. Where, th- where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter and Instagram are Chad underscore Merrill. 
And uh, mm-hmm. you can also find me, I blog at chadmerrill.com. We write about everything from multi-site to high school football to just whatever's going on in small town America. That's great. Okay, Philip, how about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Vertical Philip, And then on Snapchat, I'm just Philip Thurman. Mm-hmm. Great. And then Paul, how about where can they find you? Well, they can find me in North Florida. <laughs> <laughs> what's, a, uh, what's your church website, Paul? Uh, it's uh, rivertown.cc. It's uh, really simple, www.rivertown.cc. I am on Twitter. It's at paulsmith underscore rcc. Gotcha. And uh, those are the two places. I just want to say, if guys are looking for models for a campus pastor, Chad is a great model. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say Philip built the perfect footprint for a campus, a building, that 10,000 square foot space he has, is, is he used every space and it's doable and it's, it's just a perfect footprint. These guys are geniuses. People need to be talking to Awesome. Them. Website of your church, we got Paul's. How about yours, Philip? Ours is www.livevertical.tv. Sweet. And for you, Chad? Firstwest.cc. There you go, guys. Okay, that'll all be in the show notes. But I just want to say, too, we were on that mission trip, and when you said the perfect 10,000-square-foot facility, it reminded me of Chris Gepner from Vermont, who was on that trip as well. You guys will remember Chris. Yeah. Got an amazing thing going up there in Vermont. Um, if you're wondering, what is that trip? So one of my partners, one of the, well, actually, it's just these, we sponsor kids in Guatemala, and uh, I partner with Compassion. And so every year for the last few years, I've led a mission trip and you guys are there. And it's basically just shows church leaders what is all about with that. So if you're interested to that, stay tuned. We'll be running another trip. I think it's scheduled for December of this year. And we're always looking for some new leaders, uh, part of growing churches who want to be part of that. So uh, I would love to have you down on the trip this year and uh, follow me on my blog, leadlikeneverbefore.com for more information on that. And in the meantime, guys, thank you so much for building into just thousands of church leaders who know that want to see hope in small communities like I do. As somebody who lives, as I always say, in the middle of nowhere, I'm really glad we had this conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Gary. Hey, it's been really great. Chad Merrill, Philip Thurman, and Paul Smith. Thanks so much, guys. Well, that was a fascinating conversation and an even more fascinating phenomena. Isn't that? That just gives me hope. Gives me hope. I know some of you are going to want the show notes. So here's how the easiest way to find it, because we get mail all the time. How do we find your show notes? Leadlikeneverbefore.com. Click blog. Okay, you'll see it right there if you're listening currently, like the week this is released. If not, and you're listening way down the road, like this two years from now, um, here's what you do. Just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. There's a search little icon. Type in rural multi-site. You'll find it. That's it. All the show notes, all the links, all the goodness. And I also write a blog there. You can check that out. And join the dialogue, join the conversation, join the tribe. Uh, We got more coming up next week. In fact, I've got a conversation that I'm really, really excited about. I'm sitting down and having a conversation with a guy who's become a friend over the last year. In fact, we had him at our church for a conference we did, Mark Clark. And he is he's leading one of the fastest growing churches and one of the largest in our entire country in Canada. And uh, well, we got a great conversation. Listen in. Doing our best to connect a culture. And it's like, hey, if you've been at Village for four weeks and you're a Christian and you're not giving and in a community group and serving, what are you doing? You're just taking up space. You're weighing us down. You need to get on mission or go back to whatever church you came from. 
And uh, people are like, my gosh, she talks to us like that. I got to go bring a friend, you know? And so it's like this, <laughs> this opposite of what we thought would work in Canada. You're supposed to talk in pear-shaped tones and just suggest things to everybody. And we're just in a dialogue. We're just, hey, we're just dialoguing. I don't have truth. I just have ideas and you have ideas and we're all the ideas. And it's like, what? No, proclaim it, man. Whitfield wasn't going, hey, we all have ideas. Let's all talk about it. You know, Jonathan Edwards wasn't sitting there. Yeah, that's that's not a, you know, these guys proclaimed. Spurgeon wasn't up there suggesting. (laughs) So anyway. So that's coming up next week, and uh, make sure you subscribe, because if you do, you don't miss a thing. Also, right around the corner, my interview with Eugene Peterson. I mean, an unbelievable leader, thinker, um, mentor from afar in many ways. And then after I talked to Eugene, I sit down with Mark Batterson and Adam Weber and talk to them about how Eugene has influenced them. So this is, this is going to be a great episode. Again, subscribers, you get it all for free every Tuesday. We are back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you haven't yet registered for the Orange Tour or the Deep and Wide Tour this fall with Reggie Joyner, Andy Stanley, let me know. I'm going to be at those events and you can get all the details at orangetour.org. And I will be in all five cities that Andy's at. And uh, his schedule is not only at orangetour.org, but at deepandwide.com. So make sure you check that out this fall, coming to a city near you. In the meantime, have a great week. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.